talk to you about Hooked on Hope. It comes from the story of a woman in Scripture who was hooked on hope. But it has one major application for your life. Remember I said the creation was spelled choice, rest, environment, activity. I mean, choice, rest, and activity, trust in God, interpersonal relationships, outlook on life, and nutrition. Those eight principles. This afternoon, I want to talk to you about interpersonal relationships through the lens of Hooked on Hope. So I and O. The interpersonal relationship is this. I want to share with you what has become for me a viable model of how to deal with difficult people. It is a story of how Jesus dealt with difficult people in a tremendously difficult circumstance and how he was able to do so much healing for so many of those people in this circumstance that it absolutely overwhelms me. Now, oh, I was... Uh, been overwhelming much of the technology. So <laughs> that's all I can conclude. Uh, it absolutely overwhelms me because of the fact that he dealt with people who were treating him really nasty. But here's the part that encourages me. He wants to be in us and give us the ability to deal with people who are really nasty. Now, if you have to deal with difficult people, you're going to identify with this story. So you please, if you'll please open your Bibles to Luke. We're going to Luke, and we're going to be looking at the seventh chapter of Luke. We're going to be beginning in the 36th verse. Before we begin, let's pray. Dear Father, thank you so much for your blessings in our lives. Thank you for the way that you have shown us your love. Thank you for that enduring grace that causes us to walk by faith in your presence. Bless us now to know how to relate to people in the way that you loved them and cared for them. In Jesus' name, amen. So Christ in you is the hope of glory, is what Paul says. That word glory is character. Whenever God talks about his glory, he was revealing his character, the character of God. How do we know that? When Moses said, show me your glory, what passed before Moses? It was mercy, grace, justice, long-suffering, kindness, those kinds. of. It was the attributes of God's character. So what God wants to do is put Christ in you to reveal his character through you that you might be able to share, that the world might know you have been with Jesus. So here is a story of a woman who had the character that nobody really thought could contain Jesus. It's the story of Simon's feast. And let me set it up before we read it. Simon had a history of meeting Jesus when he was a great time of need. What was his problem? What was his disease? He was a leper. What is the problem with leprosy for a Pharisee? Why should a Pharisee have a problem when, you know, be really, really overwhelmed by leprosy? Because it means the finger of God, and it means that you deserved it, therefore God made you a leper, and it goes back to the story of Miriam when she criticizes Moses, and the Lord turns her to leprosy. That was a story that stuck in, those, in the minds and said, in fact, if you start misbehaving, God's going to judge you right here and now on this earth with leprosy. Now, S Simon had leprosy. And in this situation, he met Jesus, and Jesus healed him. 
It was a great moment in Simon's life. But what Jesus intended to happen in that moment was completely different from what the interpretation Simon put on it. Simon put the interpretation on it. Well, God sent this prophet to heal me because he, by mistake, gave me leprosy. I did not deserve it. But this guy, he's a prophet of God, and he came along and he set it straight. So God made a mistake, he corrected it, and now I'm good. Now he was ready to return to his social circle of Pharisees and be accepted. And he needed to come out so that everybody knew he was clean, and so he threw a special party, a party that was guaranteed to draw a crowd because he had two guests of honor. What were the two guests of honor? Jesus and Lazarus. So he positioned them, one on each side of him, and him sitting in the middle. But now he had a problem. His problem was the Pharisees did not like Jesus. They'd been looking for ways to kill him, especially after his situation with Lazarus. Raising Lazarus from the dead just was the final straw. They had already been angry with him because he had challenged the Sabbath. They had already been angry with him for various things and went out to, were on their way to kill him. But now he raises Lazarus, and this is the final straw. So Simon has a real problem. He's got to make sure that his friends, the Pharisees, know that he has not accepted Jesus. But at the same time, he wants his friends, the Pharisees, to accept him. So he's got to thread the needle here. Now Jesus is the guest of honor, so he comes up with a brainstorm. What's his great idea? His great idea is, when Jesus comes, I am not going to do three things that are social expectations of that feast. What were the three things? Anoint him with oil, wash his feet, and give him a hug. He did not do any of those things that would tell the Pharisees, I don't accept him, but I do have to honor him. He was my healer. Jesus had intended the healing that he gave to, to Simon to be a point at which his life was converted from trying to win the favor of God through his own merits of as a Pharisee to accepting the gift of God through his undeserved mercy. That's what he was trying to do. He completely distorted it. So he comes in and starts the feast. Now, the only thing that can really make this feast go bad is if Jesus confronts him they walk in with the disciples he does not hug him he does not anoint him he does not wash his feet and Jesus doesn't say anything Simon is sitting there I have dodged a bullet he is really happy with himself he has become really shrewd this is very good I I can manage these difficult situations and they sit down at the table And the Bible says, he went into the house of the Pharisee and sat down to eat. Verse 37. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant fragrant oil. If you have your Bible and you want to mark it with me, mark that word, behold. Whenever the Bible uses the word behold, and it's used 1,300 times, it means this is a snapshot, stop, stop, and watch it. So it is like coming to a highlight in some particular 
ball game and they show it over and over and over again, that's what they look at. So think of this as being a movie and Jesus stops it and says, behold, watch what's coming next. Just watch this because this is going to be important. And he says, behold, this woman comes in who is a sinner. Know that. Now, what did that sinful fact have to do with Simon's feast that this woman as a sinner? Who was Mary in relation to Simon? Ellen White says that he was her uncle. He was also the man that led her into sin. He had caused her. So we have a very, very challenging situation here with an unbelievable family. So they sit down at the table to eat. She comes in, she takes this alabaster flask and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with tears and wiped them with her hair of her head. And he kissed his, she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Wow. Look at folks. This is an all-male party. This is, there's no women here except serving. When a woman just... Imagine this, man. You're, you're at an all-male party. You're sitting there, and a woman comes in and bursts open this flask of perfume. Now, she was a sinner, a woman of the street. She was a prostitute in her day. Every one of them had a fragrance, and this was her fragrance. When that fragrance came into the room, they knew two things. Number one, a woman is here. Number two, it is Mary. Uh-oh, we're in trouble. Mary is off the grid again. Mary goes off the grid occasionally, and she's off the grid again. So she is in this situation that is highly embarrassing. Imagine yourself as a man. What would you say to this woman? She is anointing her feet, weeping. I don't deal well with weeping women. She is anointing his feet with perfume. I don't like that feel. That does not work for me at all. I simply want to say to her, Mary, please, do me a favor. You leave now as quickly as you can and put the cap on that perfume so it doesn't spread anymore and take it with you as fast as you can. It's going to embarrass you. It's going to embarrass me. This is going to be a terrible moment. There is no way to make this end good. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus sits there and allows it to continue. What do Matthew and Mark tell us happened? And John they tell us the disciples came around him, around her, led by Judas. And what did they do? Criticized her for not using this money for the poor. That would have been a showstopper for me if I'm Jesus. That would have been a showstopper. Judas steps up and you're using money for the poor? I know Matthew is a good tax man and a great accountant. He's been watching where this money goes. I would simply have to say, stop everything, guys. We're going to have an audit. Matthew, come here. Judas says this money should go to the poor. Where is he really taking it? What's really happening here? I would expose Judas for exactly what he was. What does Jesus do? Difficult dealing with a man who would not change. If you have to deal with people who will not change, who are always the same, and you seek to hope that one day they will change, maybe they will change, but they do not change, and they continually wear you out. For they continually do the same things. And when you trigger something happens, they have the same speeches. They have the same complaints. They attack you in the same way. They complain about you to others. They criticize you behind your back. And they do not change. 
The problem is we hope they will. And that hope is often disappointed that they will change. He turns to Judas, and instead of saying something about auditing him or exposing him, he says, leave her alone. He says to the disciples, just quit. Notice his repertoire. He has the ability to turn to the aggressive people who should have been unmasked and revealed for who they were and simply say, stop. It was the kindest thing he could have done to them. Now he turns to Simon. Simon's got a conversation going on in his brain. Verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. How does he know that? It's a community reputation. But he also knows that he started it. This is a moment when Jesus reads his mind. Now, you who know people real well, and especially people who are playing games with you, who are trying to be two different things, you know exactly what they're holding secret, and you know how to get to it. If you knew how to get to this, what would you have done? I'm thinking of myself. This would be in a perfect place to... To cleanse Simon's house, right? I mean, cleanse the temple already. Why not turn over a few tables right here and get it all in front of everybody? Why not say to Martha in the back, who is probably related as as uncle and maybe the wife of, of Simon, why not call her out and say, Martha, come here. Why not call the evening reporter over because this is the Bethany news and this is the biggest thing that's happened in Bethany in the all for a long time and say, listen, take notes because this is going to be a headline story for you. Why not say, Martha, let me tell you about Simon. Let me tell you what he did to your sister and what really happened. Why not say to Judas, let me, let Matthew, tell us about Judas and unmask him. Why not unmask everybody? He doesn't. Instead, he says this. Jesus said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Now these next words that Simon speaks, I think are gripping with sarcasm. I think he turns to him because he's pretty proud of himself. And he says, so say it, teacher. So say it. Jesus says there's a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, which one of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. Ellen White says, at this moment, Simon begins to realize that Jesus knows. If I take that and extrapolate it to my imagination, I see that all of a sudden he knows he's in the crosshairs. Have you ever tried to hide something and suddenly you know the person who you're trying to hide, from, hide it from knows it? And they are just waiting for the right moment to make you accountable and to hold you in jeopardy. The moment comes and he says to him, the one who forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. He affirms the guy. 
Instead of saying to him, you hypocrite. Anybody could understand that. But look at you. But he says to him, then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. She washed my feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. And you did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragments. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Ellen White says that it was at this moment that Simon experienced a conversion in his life. When he knew that Jesus knew him totally and could unmask him completely in front of all of his friends and take apart this whole charade of him trying to prove that he was an okay guy. And he didn't do it. He knew that love went beyond insult. But yet Jesus turned around and held him accountable. Notice what he said. You didn't wash my feet. You didn't anoint my head. You didn't give me a hug. So what's the principle? The principle is where you have been offended. Don't take the circle of knowledge any wider than the circle of offense. Nobody else in that room knew what was going on with the story. Why? Because Jesus said there are only three who understand what's really happening here in the sin. I will tell a story that all three of us understand. I understand, Simon understands, Mary understands. The circle of knowledge should always be no wider than the circle of offense. If you spread the knowledge of sin wider than the circle of of, of harm that has been done, you damage other people and you damage things that you cannot take back. And so what happens is the principle is... Don't take the circle of, a, of, of forgiveness or the circle of offense and the circle of for, forgiveness are matched perfectly. But the circle of knowledge is not wider than that circle of forgiveness. What needs to be forgiven by the people who are forgiven is all that knows this. So many times when we're dealing with difficult people, we compound the situation by sharing the sin that they have done and the offense that they have created that goes beyond the necessary people to know. And when it does, it suddenly infects a whole group of people with a gossip line and storyline and a backstory. And it divides people into camps. And Peter said, try to get along with each other. So here it is. Watch what Jesus did. To the aggressor of the disciples, Judas and the the others, He says, stop. To Simon, who is the guilty party, who is the man who is carrying on the charade that should have been unmasked, he doesn't unmask him publicly. He tells a story which reveals his inner heart and what he really knows. And he loves them. Besides, he simply says, love more, for you've only loved little. And when you know what love, and when you reach out to love more, then you will live more. He turns around to him because Simon has, Simon has disrespected him publicly and he says publicly to him, you didn't wash my feet, he holds him accountable. Now I often wondered why Jesus didn't hold him accountable right at the moment 
when he walks in, doesn't give him a hug, walks in, doesn't give him a, a wash his feet, doesn't anoint his head. That would have been the time I would have held him accountable. But Jesus waits for the moment when it is right to reach the individual, not the moment that it's my timing. So many times when dealing with a difficult person, I want to deal with them in my time, not in their readiness. Jesus waits for their readiness. So take of that principle. Waiting when the other people are ready to listen and holding on when you're ready to talk. So put it on hold when you're ready to talk. Figure out what you really want to say that would be redemptive. And then, then take it at that moment and say it. So I went through an example, a story, where I learned this the hard way. She was a young person who brought me a text that it was coming from one of my employees. The text we would call sexting today. This man was married. I had to deal with the situation. I brought him in. And I sat, down, sat him down and said, what I have to say to you is going to be hard for you and it's going to be hard for me because I want above everything else to make this a moment that is the most redemptive possible. But it's a difficult moment. We've found these texts And you know, they're not right. I am tempted to just tell you what I really think is the kind of thing that a person would do like this. But I don't think that's what Jesus would say right now for you. I think you've probably said all those things to yourself already. So let me tell you what I think Jesus would say when you beat yourself up. And I think he would say, I'm here to lift you up. There is not going to be an easy road back. You will lose your job. You might lose your marriage. But there is a Redeemer whose love is deep enough, whose heart is big enough, to take whatever you have felt about yourself as unworthy and love it when you can't love it. He will love you to the depths for he is the uttermost in the heights. We sat and talked for a while and he left thanking me that I hadn't said what he thought I was going to say. And what stopped me? Simply remembering the story. I sat as a youth director at a summer camp. When I got the news 
that a young lady had done some things in our surfing and sailing camp was inappropriate and completely against the Adventist standards. I knew it had a chance to ruin my career. I knew it had a chance to mess up our camp, and I knew it had a chance to ruin her life. And I focused on our career, my career and, my, and our church's reputation. It was close to midnight when we finished campfire, and I told her, asked her counselor to bring her in. As they walked in the office, she brought with her her accomplice, and it was obviously obvious that she told that girl not to say one word, that she would handle everything. As we sat there, I began to give her my lecture. You know this is a camp run by the church. You know what our standards are. You said you'd live up to them. You didn't. You broke the rules. You messed up your counselor. You really ruined our reputation. What do the people think down there of the Adventists? And I was in the midst of a great speech of guilt when she began to spew curse words at me at a machine gun pace. Curse words I had not heard before. She had obviously been to a creative swearing class. (laughs) She called me combinations of things I had not imagined. And in the midst of that, I was ready to turn with her to her and say, get out, good riddance, bad rubbish, you're over. Take her down the mountain, back home. And I looked and saw the counselor who she had tortured for the last three weeks sitting beside her with her lips moving, tears running down her face. She was staring intently at this girl and praying under her breath. And where was I? Defending my reputation. I stopped dead in my tracks and turned to the wall and regrouped and turned around and said, Ruthie, I've really messed up because I pretended like the most important thing here was my camp, my church, my reputation but it's not. Jesus didn't die for any of those. He died for you. And he loves you. What can I do to show that love to you just now? And that hard, chiseled face and thin lower lip began to shake and quiver. And in a few moments, Ruthie was embraced by her counselor. For I told Ruthie the thing that softened me was watching Barbara pray for her. We went to our knees. Rose took Ruthie down the mountain, but with the promise that we would take her to one of our schools for the next school year. Ruthie grew as an Adventist Christian and we had a turnaround. Not because of me, 
because of God's grace, Barbara's prayers. And because I realized that difficult people can bring you to the moment of the deepest discovery of your need for God's grace, for she stirred up every anger within me. She hit every hot button that wanted to lash back at her. And only Christ alone could redeem that moment, and he did. And he did. So it was in the moment with Mary. He says at the end, wherever the gospel is told, this story will be shared, and it is in all four gospels. Why? Because it is the magnificence of how God deals with difficult people who act ridiculously pious and absolutely inappropriate. He does not ask you to let the slights go by. He says, call them to accountability in the context of love when they're ready to listen. He does not ask that you ignore the sin, but he says, love the sinner so that the moment of forgiveness might eclipse the moment of sin. For if I had gone through with what I had done for uh, what I intended to do for Ruthie, that night, sin would have triumphed. But that night, because of Barbara, love triumphed. I say to you, my friends, love one another as he has loved you. By this will all people know that you are his disciples. The greatest sign of the remnant is that we love one another. The greatest temptation of the remnant is to feel like we're better than others. May God bless you as you love each other in his name and open arms of your church, your life, your community, the unfathomable love of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Father, we come to you and simply ask that you will shape us into the love that you showed that you will abide in us and we will abide in you and that the fruit of the Spirit will be abundant in harvest and overflowing in our lives. For every difficult moment and person that you face just now, I pray that you will have the grace of God to deliver the message of God at the right moment of God that you might live in love. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.